Ephesians chapter 6, we're continuing in Paul's instruction to the believers, okay? He's, he's continuing on. We've covered wives and husbands, and, and this really all started back really in chapter 4, and he's covering the different things that we're supposed to be doing. And I almost felt bad, Scott, releasing the children today, because today we're going to be dealing with children. It's like, okay, all right, all you kids leave so you don't hear this. That's what I felt like we did today in a sense, but you know what? They're going to hear it to you again. So we're, let's start in verse 1 of chapter 6, which says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And all parents said amen, right? Great sermon. Okay, let's pray. That's, that's what we want as, as parents, right? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Verse 2 goes on to say, Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, verse 5, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. And masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their masters and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So as we continue in our teaching in Ephesians here, we see Paul continues to instruct the church of Ephesus. And what's, what's critical to note is he's not instructing unbelievers here. He's instructing believers. So we're going to be dealing with four relational aspects in these nine verses here. We're going to be dealing with children, instruction to children and their relationship and obedience to their parents. The second thing is the instruction to the parents and their relationship to their children. The third one is the instructions to slaves, to their masters, and number four is from the masters back to the slaves. So those are the four things that Paul is instructing here. Let's look back with me at uh, verse 1, we're going to work our way through verses 1 through 3 here. Verse 1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Children are to obey their parents, right? Right. Do children obey parents? No. What's wrong here? Sin is what's going on. We're born with a sin nature. We're born as a fallen man. So that's why we struggle with this whole idea of obedience. It's always a struggle. But what's interesting here is Paul, in verses 1 through 3, he, he didn't say, oh, parents, remind your kids. By the way, today you've got to remind your kids of this message, okay, if your kids are upstairs. But Paul is actually directly, he's speaking directly to the children the children are present during this instruction to the church. They're in listening to Paul. And Paul's saying to them, you need to listen. You need to obey. You need to honor. 
The kids were here hearing the truth of God's Word. Proverbs 1.8 says this, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. It's important to note that Paul does not use the word submit here, as we've been using so much recently. Instead, he uses the word obey. Okay? And there's a difference between the two. Submitting to one another versus obeying that which has been placed over you. The word obey expressed in this time especially the unquestioning compliance expected of children towards their parents. The unquestioning compliance of obedience to their, to their parents. So, this compliance, okay, what obedience is not. So if you're a child here, which I got just a few, but if you go to Walmart and your mom says, hey, put this lipstick in your backpack or in your pocket and walk out, okay, that's not an okay thing to be obedient to, all right? We're not called to be obedient to that. What we're called to be as children is to be obedient to the guidelines and the rules or what, Scott, you referred to a couple weeks ago, I love, the house codes, okay? What are we supposed to do as believers, Okay, so children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So, this compliance is based on the boundaries. It's based on the boundaries set forth by parents. This is a God-given right, by the way, to parents to set boundaries for their kids. You are expected to set boundaries for your kids, and you should set boundaries for your kids. Failure to do so not only displeases God but it leads towards a child rebelling against God. It leads towards a child rebelling against a holy God if you do not set up boundaries. How do the kids know how to obey? There's no way they would know how to obey if there wasn't rules that they had to obey. You have a speed limit to follow. I didn't do a good job in December. I got pulled over by a Temecula motor cop, and he said, do you have any idea how fast you were going? And I said, uh, I'm going to go with, I'm just thinking about the, what my truck sounded like. I said, I'm going to go with 53. And he said, you're real close. You're going 55. And then he said, do you have any idea what the speed limit is? I said, I'm going to need a range here. I'm going to need a little range here. I'm going to go with, well, since he pulled me over, I know it wasn't 55, right? I'm going to go with 40 to 45. Let's go 40 to 45. And he goes, you're pretty close again. It's 40. And so I did, ooh, that's 13 over, or 15 over, actually. Yeah, 15 over. He showed a lot of grace and let me go. I was on my way to work. That might have helped a little bit. But there's rules that we need to be obedient to. There's a reason why there's laws and rules. Because if not, some of you might drive 100 miles an hour down Jefferson. 55 might have been a little fast down Jefferson, apparently. So that was not respected by the motor cop at this time. It was Christmas Eve. I was heading to work, and that was his Christmas gift to me. He let me go, I guess. But I deserved punishment, didn't I? I was disobedient to what the laws were. Well, there's boundaries set up by parents for a reason. How about this one? Don't cross the street before looking both ways. Right? Right? My kids grew up on a cul-de-sac. Shane didn't. He, was, he spent his early years on a through street, but we've been on a cul-de-sac. And I honestly, I worried about them. Like, they're going to walk right out in front of a car. We're at the very end of the cul-de-sac, and 
you know, here's going to be Tyler, just right in front of a car. And I've seen him do it. So I had to overly instruct him because he didn't see the problems with crossing the street because there's no cars there. Uh, how about this one? Don't talk to strangers. Remember the stranger danger? You know, so we grew up these little kids, don't talk to strangers that never know how to evangelize now, right? Because they don't talk to strangers, <laughs> if you think about it. But no, there's, there's reasons why we set up these rules for kids. Don't go to the man with a van with no windows that has puppies he wants to show you or candy, right? There's, it's to protect our children, and they're to obey it. You know, it was interesting at work the other night. Um, uh, my engine company, we're all older. Um, we're old in the fire department, really. But the ambulance was leaving. They said, hey, they said, Cap, we're going to head out. We're going to get some stuff. And my engineer yelled out, well, be home, before the street, or be home when the street lights turn on. And these two young guys were like, what is he talking about? <laughs> Who remembers? Be home for, yeah, exactly, right? And, and it was so funny. Those are the rules given to us. And uh, for me personally, if I heard my dad whistle and I looked up and the street lights were out on, ooh, I was going to pay for it. That means he was coming to look for me and my rear end was going to know it. That's the way it was growing up. And a lot of kids now, they was like, why don't you head out until the streetlights come on? Get off the electronic devices, right? So there's a bunch of different rules that we give to kids. They're God-given rights to give to our children so that they can grow up to be God-fearing young men and women. I came across an interesting report. I always like reading about things when I'm preparing for a sermon. I like reading about what different people think about kids and, and when I was looking at this one. So I came across a Minnesota Crime Commission report, and it's dealing with parenting, really, or lack thereof, and misbehaving children. It's a, it's a correlation between lack of parenting, lack of setting rules, and misbehaving children. And it's interesting that, I mean, this is out for, in Minnesota, a statewide sponsored report, and it says this, Every baby starts life as a little savage. <laughs> not cute, not cuddly. No, they start off as a little savage. Goes on to say, he or she is completely selfish and self-centered. He or she wants what they want when they want it, their bottles, their mother's attention, or other playmates' toys, you name it. Deny them these, and they seethe with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous if they were not so helpless. I think about the cat thing you talked about when I was reading this. If cats were bigger, they'd want to kill you, right? It was, uh, but you know, if these babies were bigger or capable, you've seen the rage out of the kids. It goes on to say they have no morals, knowledge, or developed skills. This means that all children, not just some, all children. This is interesting. From the Minnesota Crime Commission. This means that all children, not just some, are born delinquent. Interesting. Yes. If permitted to continue in their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to their impulsive actions to satisfy each and every one, every child would grow up a thief, a murderer, and a lifelong criminal. It went on to talk about the parents and their lack of parenting. 
What Paul's saying here, though, it's the parent's responsibility to raise up a child with boundaries and those God-given rules. It's the child's responsibility to obey them. Now, church, we live in a society that we, we teach our children to obey. And if they don't, there's consequences. Some are worse than others. Mine, if, they, if I heard my dad whistling, it was going to hurt. But I was disobedient to what he told me to do. But we live in a society now that teaches to question everything that you're teaching your, parent, that you're teaching your children. They're going to go off to school, whether it be elementary school, junior high, high school, and especially in the college system and the universities, they're being taught to rebel against everything they've been taught. We must, as parents, give and teach our children, church, a strong, strong, strong biblical foundation so that they can stand firm on the onslaught of the lies of this world. That's why we teach them to obey, for this is right, is what it says. And it says at the end of the verse, in the Lord. And we're going to notice through Paul's instruction, he keeps pointing us towards these attitudes and why we're doing it. We're doing everything unto the Lord or in the Lord. Verse 2 says this, though, continuing on. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So first instruction is for children to obey their parents. Be obedient. Do what they say you're to do. The next thing it says to children is that they're to honor their parents. Honor. Honor means to show respect or reverence to. Parents are given the authority over their kids, and the kids are to respect this. And this, at the time of the writing, when Paul's instructing the church of Ephesus here, it's totally different than it is today. Now, we have bad things happening in homes, but the kids were not looked at. In fact, the fathers really didn't do anything with their kids. In fact, if they actually lived kind of what it said in Deuteronomy that said to whip them often and do not laugh with them. It's an interesting verse. That's totally different than, than how we have grown up in our society. And... But kids are to honor. They were not honoring their parents at this time. In fact, there was a lack of honoring, a complete lack. Just like how uh, when taught, Scott was teaching about the, parent, the husband and wife, it was not a companionship. It wasn't a, a, this harmonious marriage you know, institution with kids that are just honoring and obeying and following God, and it's just this mirrored image of Christ, right? It was completely the opposite, actually, in the church of Ephesus. They were struggling through how they were supposed to be living with one another. That's why Paul's giving this instruction to the church. So honor. The word honor does not mean just while the kids are living at home. We're to honor our parents for our lifetime. Okay, for their lifetime. And we can honor our parents even after their lifetime. How do we speak of our parents? How do we treat our parents? What do we, th what do we think of our parents? It can, it can be in our heart. What do we, how do we even, okay, I'm not going to show, a, you know, ask for a raise of hands, but we all grew up with different parents. And some of them were great. Some of them were okay. And some of them were horrible. 
And yet God calls us and the children here to honor our parents, regardless of who they were. We're to honor them, to show respect because they've been placed in authority over us. The greatest way that we can honor our parents' church, the same when Paul was instructing in Ephesus here, is the same for us. The greatest way you can honor your parents is to live a life fully dedicated to serving the Lord. That's the greatest way we can honor our parents. Proverbs 10.1 says that a wise man, excuse me, a wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Proverbs 15.20 says a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. Another chapter in Proverbs 23, verse 24 says, The father of a righteous man will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. That's what honor to our parents looks like. It's not only taking care of them as, as they get older and maybe even providing. There's many ways we can honor, but to live a godly life. Your parents instructing you with your biblical foundation, that strong biblical foundation to live a godly life is the greatest way that we can honor our parents. Verses 2 and 3 continues with the last part. It says that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Paul's actually quoting Exodus 20, verse 12 there, dealing with Israel, which, here, which said in Exodus, Honor, there's that word again, Honor your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Honor. What they're talking about there, you have to understand that, you know what, if your kids acted up and they weren't obedient and they weren't honoring to you, you know what could happen to them? They'd die young, maybe by the hand of the father. Okay? And it was, and it was understood and a normal situation back then. Now we go to jail, and we should. You know, if something happened, if we did something to our kids. Have there been times I've maybe wanted to kill one of my kids? Yes, but I love them. I love them. They didn't have that love relationship back then the same way. They wanted boys. They wanted boys to farm, and they wanted boys to work. And girls were actually, to have a, a, a girl was, they might even be left out to die at that time. But Paul's instructive instruction is to honor. Honor your father and mother radical change to what would be normal in the Greco-Roman era at that time. They were not honoring. The second instruction we see in Paul's writing now deals with the parents' relationship back to their children. So we know that children are to obey and to honor their parents and the Lord for this is right. Okay? This is the right thing. It's pretty simple instruction. Obey and honor. Now we have instruction to parents, but primarily fathers. Let's look in verse 4. Verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word fathers here is actually refers to the Greek word proteres, okay, which is where we get the word paternal. And through most of the Bible, when they use the word proteres, it refers to fathers. Where it's, it's different, the same word is used describing Moses' Parents, both mother and father. But Paul here, I believe, is speaking directly to fathers. It doesn't take away the responsibility of a mother. So moms, you can't fall asleep here. You're like, okay, let's see. I had children. I got fathers. I got slaves to masters and masters to slaves. I'm out. 
I'm good to go. No, I want you to keep listening here because I think moms still have a responsibility here. But fathers have a greater responsibility. And when Paul says to them, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. This first part of the verse is actually a negative command coming from Paul. What does it mean to provoke your children to anger? What does that mean? Well, let me tell you, first of all, what it doesn't mean. Just because your child is angry after you discipline them when they did something wrong. And I have seen this with parents. It's like, oh, you know, I'm not saying Lisa and Scott, but Scott, you're too hard on them. They got what they deserve, the little sinners, the little savages. They got exactly what they deserved. And if they're angry, too bad. It's okay to be angry at your own sin. Okay? That's not what provoking a child is. That is not what's provoking. So husbands and wives don't get on each other just because they, your husband or your wife got on your kids, okay? If they did something wrong, discipline is necessary. Discipline is what directs your child towards doing the right thing. <clears throat> but I, I looked through here as I was, again, studying for this, and I, I came up with a list that I believe is a common sense cause of causing your children to be provoked to anger, Number one, showing favoritism. Showing favoritism between your kids. And I started thinking about some passages, but Isaac favored Esau, Esau over Jacob, and Rebekah preferred Jacob over Esau. How's that worked out to today? Showing favoritism will provoke your children to anger. Look what they did between each other and the lies and the deceit and the scheming that went on. Number two, comparing your children to one another, especially with those kids present. Kids pick up on things, and if you start comparing them, that's going to result in rage and bitterness and the feeling that they're just not going to ever live up to another child there in the household. How about this one? Pushing achievements beyond a reasonable bound or boundaries. I call this the overbearing sports parent who was never going to make it in, in like, okay, I, I played youth soccer, so my expectation would be my kids are going to play for pro soccer, okay? You know, Scott made it to high school football, and Aaron was supposed to be on the Miami Dolphins or the New Orleans Saints or something. But you've seen this, <coughs> excuse me, you've seen this in... Um, you know, you go to a sporting event and you see these parents just screaming and screaming and it's just like, can the kid just have fun? Can the kid just play baseball or football? So this over, overbearing, pushing beyond reasonable boundaries, and that can happen in school too. I'm never going to push my kids overly hard in school. I showed up in school. I was present. I should have got a, I, I was present award, you know. <laughs> That was it, okay? I, uh, I didn't exactly, in high school, when I, once I got to college, it, I actually got it engaged and excited about it. But if the push shame to be a doctor, you know, like, you need to be a doctor. I only became a paramedic. I mean, that, would, that, could, that could provoke him to anger because he decides, like, I, I just, I want to be a trash man. Yeah. You know, and I start pushing these unreasonable boundaries. Number four, constant discouragement. And what I mean by that, if you constantly discourage or you never compliment your children, or if the only words that come out of your mouth is what they do wrong, 
That's going to provoke your child to anger. Number five, not letting your kids grow up at a normal pace. It's okay for a kid to be a kid. It's good for a kid to be a kid. And to constantly chiding them, you know, quit acting like a child. That one always makes me laugh to the six-year-old. Quit acting like a child. What do you want me to act like? It's okay to be a kid. Maybe I should say to the parents, start acting like an adult. Treat your child like a child, raising them up unto the Lord. Number six, using love as a tool or withholding love as a form of punishment. If you withhold love when a child does something wrong or you show them love when they do something right, and that's the only time you do that, that child's going to begin to sense that you love him or her less when they misbehave. It'll actually cause a child to believe that you love them less. The reason why we discipline is because we love our children. That's why we discipline. Number seven, unfortunately, we saw it back in this time when Paul was talking and instructing the church, but we see it now, physical, verbal abuse. There's no greater and quicker way to cause a child to be provoked to anger. We're seeing this too often. We should always remember as parents that the proper physical discipline is not a matter of exerting superior authority and strength, but of correcting in love and reasonableness. We have to be reasonable in our discipline also. Hostile homes, church, produce hostile children. Hostile homes produce hostile children. So we have to check ourselves. Again, do not provoke your children to anger. Are we provoking our children to anger? Are the words we're saying or the actions we're doing causing our children to be provoked to anger? But we see in the second part of verse 4, we had a negative command, do not provoke your children to anger. Now we have a positive command, says, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers have the ultimate responsibility of raising their children in such a way that they'll be trained or brought up in the understanding of the Christian faith. It's the father's responsibility. Now, does this exclude the mother from teaching our children the ways of the Lord? Paul's speaking to fathers here. But mothers have a responsibility to do the same as parenting. Absolutely they do. I'm so thankful for my wife and the teaching she's done to the kids. But Fathers have the ultimate responsibility for doing this. Not every kid is homeschooled, and I'm not going to sit there and say every kid should be homeschooled, but in this area, we need more homeschooling. I'm not talking about math and science and arithmetic. I guess that'd be math. And English and reading and lit, everything through it. No, we need more homeschooling and biblical foundations to our children. We need to teach them in such a way that they're going to be able to stand strong when they're attacked for their beliefs. And it's the father's responsibility to be teaching that to our children, to be giving those biblical principles. The third instruction that uh, Paul writes here in, in Ephesians is in the relationship to slaves to their masters. Now, I've heard a lot of sermons on this where it's, okay, you know, we're going to teach on, they, they use the word bondservant or slaves, which are the same, and then they go right to employers and employees, and they teach about employees and employers. 
And although that's completely applicable here, okay, it is applicable, Paul is speaking to slaves here. And I want you guys to keep the text in context here. Because there were slaves, and there were slave owners. Obviously, there were kids, and there were fathers. So they're covering the four things here. Now we're going to be dealing with slaves. He's speaking to slaves, but Paul doesn't condemn slavery, nor does he condone it here. It was a cultural norm to have slaves and masters at this time. Verse 5, look with me through 5 through 8. It says, bond servants obey, the same word, just like children obey. Bond servants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or is free. So again, I talked about, you know, an employers and employees, and I've heard a lot of sermons on this. Again, Paul's actually writing instruction to slaves. There are slaves in the church. There are masters in the church. And he's writing to them. And I want you to catch throughout this, it's all about the heart. It's about their attitude and their heart towards their masters and the masters towards the slaves. The first attitude that we see in verse 5 is that they're to obey their earthly masters with fear and trembling. That they're to obey. The same word that he called for children to obey their parents. Now Paul here is not saying that they should be terrorized. It's actually different. He's saying be obedient to them with fear and trembling. The same way that we're obedient to Christ. That we fear God. He's not talking about being so afraid of their masters and he had every right to say it that way because the Masters could beat them, they could sell them, they could kill them. But Paul here is, is calling the slaves to be obedient to their earthly masters with fear and trembling. The second attitude that we see in verse 5 is that they should obey with a sincere heart. This means that the slaves should have hearts that are innocent of any kind of improper motivation. Now I think back to employers and employees a little bit. Have you ever gone to work and kind of had the improper heart? I've talked to some of you. I've shared my complaints. You've shared yours with mine. And it's just like, why does this manager, why does this guy, you know, my employees are terrible. It's the same thing that Paul's talking about the slaves here. It's, he's checking their hearts here. It says they should obey with a sincere heart. They're to have purity in their intentions and not to succumb to scheming and deceit. Slaves would have every reason to go against their masters. They were not free to go. Okay, and one area where this is totally different than being an employee or an employer, you can quit. You can quit your job and go do something else. They didn't have the ability to quit their job. They were slaves. They were bondservants to the masters. So they had to serve, either with a begrudging heart, scheming against their masters, or... Paul instructs them, check your heart. Check your heart and serve with a proper heart, with, an, with proper motivation, with proper impurity in their intentions. 
The third thing we see in this verse, though, it says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. But it ends with this, as you would Christ. As you would Christ. The slaves should obey their masters as they obey Christ. Remember Paul speaking to believers here. He's not, believe, he's not instructing non-believers. He's instructing believers on how they ought to live, and he's instructing slaves. Have a heart of service have a proper heart with the right motives that you serve your master the same way you serve Christ. That's what Paul's calling them to do. And this, again, would be radically different than what they would have been expected to act like back at this time. It was not a good situation between the slaves and the slave owners. Paul believes in his instruction here that the bond servants or slaves should obey their human masters as well as obeying Christ. Look with me in verse 6. It goes on with instruction, saying, Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So we see two more things here in this verse, fourth and fifth way, that the slaves should provide their services as followers of Christ it's actually expressed in contrasting attitudes here and behavior seen in verse 6. They are simply not, they're not supposed to be doing it or giving a good impression as ways of eye service or people pleasers. This is the same language that we use as giving lip service, right? I just gave them lip service. You know, I, I, I brushed them off. I'm... By way of eye service, I'm going to look good when the boss is looking. I'm going to look good when my master is looking, is what he's saying. This is fake news, right? It's fake. It's not right. Paul's saying here that they should act the same way when they're being watched by their masters as when they're not being watched. And I think about this, church. Are we supposed to act in Are we being watched by God? Are we, should we be acting? Are we more aware of it at times? God sees everything and, and all things that we do, both good and evil. And I think about, like, okay, we, how easily it is as a Christian. Oh, I'll just, I'm going to kind of just give lip service and, I, and be eye-pleasing. I'm going to look like a Christian. I'm going to look good for about five seconds, and then my real side will come out. Paul's imploring that they serve again, with the purest of motives here in verse 6. They're not to, be, not to be serving as eye service or people pleasers. But he reminds them again at the end of verse 6, but as bond servants, or another word again, but as slaves of Christ. And that sounds very familiar to me. Slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7.22, that we as believers are slaves in Christ, that we're slaves in Christ. Actually, Paul starts off many of his letters, Romans 1, Galatians 1, Philippians 1, Titus 1, all in the first verse, that he is a slave to Christ. And Paul is comparing the slaves at this time that we're no different as the believers, that we're slaves to Christ, that we serve a greater master. And we're going to see that when we start to look at the master's role. Verse 7 says this, Rendering service with a good will 
as to the Lord and not to man. Doing their job with goodwill. The previous verse says, doing the will of God from the heart. Now we're to render our service as slaves. We are to do everything that we do with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. Now this sounds almost confusing. Didn't he just say obey your, your earthly masters? We're doing everything we do as believers unto the Lord. That's what we're called to do. It's not to do, going back to the earlier part of verses 5 and 6, it's not giving eye service or lip service. It's not being people pleasers to man. Our ultimate goal is to serve God. So Paul's now summarizing his appeal to Christian slaves, and he's repeating it. Too often we need to have words repeated. He repeats it over. I need to hear things over and over sometimes, and finally it clicks. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's, he's summarizing his appeal to Christian slaves by instructing them to serve with a great attitude. They're in their situation. They're slaves. This is instruction has already been defined in the previous five instructions, but he emphasizes that they consider their work as a service done directly unto the Lord himself. That's what Paul's imploring the slaves to do, to do your work unto the Lord. And that changes their hearts if you think about it. Verse 8 says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, that he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. This is a great motivation if you think about it. They're, they're not free. These are slaves, okay? So slaves could earn their freedom. But again, Paul's reminding them, again, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bond, servant, or is free. One of the motivations for serving with a good attitude and performing good works is the assurance of being in God's will and receiving blessings and awards, rewards. God rewards those who are obedient, and that's what Paul is instructing the church to do. Church, we're called to do all things under the Lord, regardless of our circumstances in life. I don't think anybody's being held as a slave here. Pretty sure. Raise your hand if you do, and we'll get you, get you taken care of. But everything that's happening in life, okay, we're called to be obedient and to do everything unto the Lord. Everything we do, we should be doing unto the Lord. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of how bad our job is, regardless of how bad our marriage is, regardless of how bad life may be, maybe how bad our kids are, and that they're not being obedient or honoring. It, it, whatever your circumstances are, we're supposed to be doing everything unto the Lord, pleasing to the Lord. Paul's fourth and final instruction is to the masters and their relationship from masters to the slave. Look with me in verse 9. It says this, Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Paul's starting it off with saying, Master, stop lording it over your slaves. Stop abusing your slaves. At this time of Paul's writing, the master could, like I said, he could kill, beat, threaten, anything bad. Can't come up with any more words on it. But anything that could happen bad to a slave, he could do to him. 
He could trade them off. He could get rid of them. He, he's, you had no rights as a slave. And Paul is saying, Masters, do the same to them what he just instructed to the slaves. What? Be like a slave? This is so different what Paul's teaching here. These new attitudes were not characteristic of slave owners. This is not what they were used to doing. They were used to abusing their slaves. Some were nice. I'm not saying everyone was mean. But overall, it was not a good situation to be a slave. And there were a lot of slaves. There were a lot of slaves. In fact, there are so many slaves that oftentimes, historically, if you would have a family and there'd be uncles and brothers and, and, and all sorts of people in the family, and if one person had a business, that family member could actually own cousins and other uncles and brothers as slaves in the business. They could own them. Family members could own other family members. That's how bad this, this was with slavery and with masters. So Paul's calling them, quit threatening them, quit abusing them. This form of mutual submission is what we're seeing here. This form of mutual submission. Slaves to the masters, masters to the slaves. No different than we saw children to their parents of being obedient and, and the instruction on how fathers should be raising their children. We don't submit to each other in the same way there. Okay, Kids are kids. Adults are adults. But slaves and masters, Paul's instructing them for this, this, this mutual submission that was so different from the cultural norm at that time. Paul's instruction is actually calling for the owners to have what's called servant leadership. Does that sound like a management term nowadays? I've been going to different management classes. You've probably been through different ones going through schooling, and they talk about servant leadership. And they act like, oh, we got this great new idea, you know, as bosses. You're going you're gonna to be the servant leader. And I'm thinking, like, that's been around forever. Nobody's doing it. That's the problem, actually. We need servant leadership. We need bosses that are servant leaders. That's what Paul's instructing them to do, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5.21. It all goes back to that verse, mutual submission. Paul, again, is writing to believing masters here. He's not, these, are, these are believers that were beating their slaves and threatening their slaves. It wasn't a good situation, but that was the cultural norm. He calls them to do the same thing, to do the same. That would be like crazy to hear. If you think about that, that would be just nuts. That, like, Paul, what are you saying? You want me to treat them the same way that they're to treat me? That was a radical change. There was a radical heart change going on here. They were to treat each other with mutual submission as to Christ. Church, there's always going to be somebody with authority over you. There's always going to be somebody... I don't care if you're the biggest business owner in the world. Stop paying your taxes. See what happens. You're going to have somebody over you. It's called the IRS. And then you're going to have somebody over you even further, which is called the prison guard, when you get caught for that. There's always going to be have somebody that's going to have authority over you. Paul reminds the masters here that there's one over him who's the ultimate master. He may be a master of the slave, but Paul's reminding him there's a greater master 
whom you serve as a reminder. And that greater master is God. Deuteronomy 10.17 says, For the Lord your God is God of God and Lord of lords. The great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who notice says, uses the same word here, the, and the awesome God who shows no partiality. When Paul ends this verse, he's, he's talking about, as soon as I find it, and yours is in heaven, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality in him. God doesn't see the masters as being over or greater than. He doesn't see the slaves as being less than. There's a greater God, a greater master, Paul's instructing, that you serve as masters and slaves. There's a greater God, and that everything we do, everything that they were to do was to be unto the Lord. Saul comes down, church, in conclusion. You know, Paul's writing to believers on how we ought to live in relationships with one another. But he's also given instructions, and we can apply this to our lives. He's also writing that we should be able to live out our Christian lives with one another in a way that's unto the Lord, that's glorifying to God. Saul comes down to a heart problem. I'm not talking about a blocked artery. I'm talking about the same thing that was Paul was talking about, doing everything with a sincere heart. It comes down to a heart problem and heart issues is what this passage is all about. He's calling the believers to change their heart. We're called to submit to one another. And just like the church in Ephesus, we, church, are called to be obedient to God in every circumstance that we find ourselves in life. We could sit here for the next five minutes and you could try to give me an answer of where, well, do I have to be obedient in that place? Yes. Do I have to be obedient here? Yes. And we, you guys could come up with anything you wanted to, and I'd have to say yes. So we'll save that part, okay? Yes, we have to be obedient. Whether we're a child, don't have any slaves or masters here, but we do have employees and employers are we being obedient in our job? Is our heart, church, being sincere when we show up to work tomorrow morning? Are we giving it at all to not only our employer but to the Lord? So, church, are we, I'm going to close with this. Are we, are we as believers here, just like Paul was teaching to the believers in the church of Ephesus, are we believers in Marietta Valley Church? Are we being obedient to the point that we are doing all things out of reverence to Christ? I want you to think about that as we close. Are we doing all things out of obedience to the point of where everything we do is being obedient to Christ? Are we submitting to one another as well as to God? out of reverence to the greatest master who ever lived and whoever will be our God and Savior. Let's pray.